Hey, true weirdos, at the end of this episode, stick around if you want for a little bonus content and conversation. No one says, I do. Planning to change that to, I don't. But life has a way of punching you hard right in the face. And the next thing you know, detectives are kicking down your hotel room door, your baby gets kidnapped, and then it all gets a lot stranger. And they got a small beam of light against the It could happen at any moment. You might be standing in front of the small closet, buttoning up a shirt. You might be in the bathroom, washing your hands or stepping into the tub. You might be tangled in the sheets, awake or asleep, alone or maybe not. The sudden, sharp knocking. The splintering crack of a door being forced open. It's a raid. Police detectives swarm the room. A raid? A raid. The police aren't here looking for drugs or weapons. There's no warrant for your arrest. Technically, you've done nothing wrong. But the law doesn't take kindly to unmarried couples sharing a hotel room, much less a bed. You just got busted. And if that feels like the most gross invasion of your privacy, the most offensive abuse of your basic rights, suck it up, buttercup. This is the USA in 1940, and whether it's adultery or fornication, it's a crime. Whoa there, a crime? A crime. In fact, adultery is still a criminal offense in 17 states and the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. Don't get caught in Oklahoma, Michigan, or Wisconsin, because it's a felony in those three states. It's a misdemeanor in 14 others. It's a crime that's rarely prosecuted today, but that wasn't always true. Don't get the idea, though, that cops were going door to door, arresting people for the crime of hooking up. Laws like this fall under the category of vice. And vice laws, if we're honest, have always been selectively enforced. For example, there hasn't been a single adultery case prosecuted in the state of Illinois for over 50 years. But in 2010, a married woman in New York was charged with the crime of adultery for having sex on a picnic table in a public park. I mean, ew, plus the risk of splinters. That case was resolved when the woman agreed to plead guilty to public lewdness provided the adultery charge got kicked to the curb. It's trippy to imagine getting arrested for adultery because we think that our private lives should be exactly that. We think the government has no place in our bedrooms or our hotel rooms. And while we're busy believing that, the government's busy trying to mind our most intimate personal business. The fact is, until about 1970, the laws in this country around divorce were so harsh and strict that warring couples were forced to either stay together, 
abandoned the legal marriage for a lifestyle of casual bigamy, which happened a lot more than you think, or traveled to a place with more lenient legalities, a place like Reno, Nevada. This was such a common thing that capitalism even gave it a name, the migratory divorce trade. My dudes, the puritanical foundation this country was built on set us up for so much weird behavior, so much contradictory behavior, and hypocrisy by the truckloads. This is a story about love and marriage and divorce and money. Let's hop in the true weird time machine now and head to sunny Miami, Florida. It's March 1937. You're about to meet a stunning actress and her Wall Street rich husband. There's going to be a hotel raid, an ugly divorce, a kidnapping, and a million-dollar bubble bath. Her name was Money Eye Lindley. Isn't that a fun name, Money Eye? She was born in Cleveland, Ohio on August 13, 1908. Her father was a very successful man, and Money Eye's early life was all wealth and privilege. But like so many beautiful girls of her time and now, she dreamed of Hollywood. Money Eye wanted to be a movie star. Ever since I can remember, I have always wanted to be an actress. There were complications. I came of Quaker stock, and my father was opposed to the theater. To get me away from it and my ambition, I have been sent away to schools, to girls' camp, even Europe. But I always had to come back to it because I knew that something inside me would burst if I did not. They called her Hollywood's poor little rich girl. She'd arrived in L.A. with a stylish wardrobe and an enviable list of social connections. If she'd hoped that combination would open doors and smooth her pathway to stardom, she very quickly learned that it didn't work quite that way in the movie business. You can't go to your friends and ask them to give you a part Besides, most people think that a girl who really doesn't need the money is only looking for a thrill from being in pictures. Money I had to fight her way to an acting career. She managed to have some success and was cast in three motion pictures, and that ain't nothing. She played Monica Van Buren in 1932's Tangled Destinies. Melissa and I were on the road together the year after you ditched her and the kid. She showed me your picture and told me the whole rotten story. Where is she now? In New York, working in a burlesque show for $22.50 a week. Then came Listening In, where she played a telephone operator who accidentally connects the wife of a cheating husband to a call where he's arranging a double date with his mistress. Oops! Hilarity! She rounded out her film career playing the girlfriend of a good-for-nothing lazy rich man in 1933's Girl from Georgia, a movie that was banned from being shown in many theaters on the grounds that it offended public morality, probably thanks to Money Eye's character losing her man to a girl named Waffles. 
Waffles knew a special trick or two when it came to motivating a shiftless man to get his act together. Money Eye craved stardom, but Destiny had other plans for the beauty from the Buckeye State. She had just wrapped up the lead role in a stage production called Between the Covers when a swaggering finance tycoon by the name of Wallace Groves stepped into her spotlight. Wally, as he was called, was brilliant and bold. He took his four college degrees to Wall Street, where he spun a single idea into a million-dollar investment fund. His rise was so meteoric that the Securities and Exchange Commission poked their heads in for a look. He was already the talk of New York, the man with the Midas touch, the man who'd raked in over $360,000 profit in a single day. That's over eight million bucks in today's money. And that's the kind of success that attracts all sorts of attention. It was the classic whirlwind courtship, something right out of a movie Money Eye might have had a part in. The couple married and settled into one hell of an extravagant life in a penthouse on Park Avenue. Now, don't you dare go thinking that it was Wally's riches that seduced Money Eye. She had plenty of riches of her own. Her father was loaded, and it set his daughter up with a fat trust fund worth millions. She didn't need a nickel from Wally, and she gave up her Hollywood ambitions to be his bride. Wally had the Wall Street crowd worshipping at his feet, and Money Eye was the toast of New York's theatrical and art scene. They were a power couple for sure, and seemed happy too. And then happier still when their son, Wallace Jr., was born. It was a real-life fairy tale. And you know how those go. A price must always be paid for all that beauty and bliss. A dark price. Baby Wallace was just a few weeks old when Wally suggested to Money Eye that they take a vacation to Miami. The trip would do her good, he said. Sunshine, fresh air, orange juice. No sooner had they arrived than Wally chartered a luxury yacht called the Louisa Jane for a cruise to the Bahamas. Eight guests joined the couple for the seven-day sail, and yeah, damn. Say what you want about the rich, but these people clearly know how to enjoy themselves. So, on the night the group returned to Miami, Money Eye found a telegram waiting for her. Her beloved father was seriously ill. He was dying in Philadelphia. She made plans to leave Miami to travel to his bedside the following evening. She never imagined what this decision would cost. The next day, with her luggage packed, Money Eye was showering when she was startled by a loud pounding on the door of her hotel suite. Then, to her shock and terror, she heard the sound of doors cracking and splitting. Soaking wet, naked, and vulnerable, Money Eye cowered as a group of people smashed through the bathroom door yelling, We finally got you with the goods! The press called it a raiding party. Money Eye recognized some of the faces in that mob crowding into the bathroom of that Miami hotel. Her brother-in-law and his wife, a woman who'd been their guest on the yacht, a well-known New York City detective named William Ryan, the hotel's clerk, a bellboy, and most shocking... Her own husband, Wally. As quickly as they came, the group left, laughing and slapping each other on the back, heading for the bar and drinks. 
Moniai was left shivering and bewildered and furious. But she set her confusion and anger aside, leaving Miami as planned to travel to her dying father's bedside. When she returned to her penthouse on Park Avenue a week later, a fresh nightmare awaited. Divorce papers. Wally demanded the end of the marriage on the grounds of what had been discovered in that Miami hotel raid. Spoiler alert. What had been discovered was Money Eye shampooing her hair. Not that the truth mattered. Wally was a man and a rich, powerful one at that. His word against hers and the raiding party would back anything he claimed. But even worse, baby Wallace was gone. Money Eye feared the infant had been kidnapped and her fears were justified. The 20-month-old son of famous aviator Charles Lindbergh had been kidnapped and murdered just five years earlier. Money Eye and Wally were not as famous as Lindbergh, but they were prominent and their wealth was no secret. Money Eye was frantic, desperate, frightened, nearly out of her mind. It was later revealed that Wally had instructed the baby's nurse to take the child to a hotel and stay hidden, a charade he allowed to continue for a week. He finally called for baby Wally to be returned to his mother and even dropped his divorce lawsuit. Money Eye was having none of it. Her anger had chilled to an icy fury. Wally, in whatever this madness was, had gone too far. Whether out of remorse or in hopes of putting an end to the whole psycho soap opera he'd engineered, Wally financed a trip to Reno, Nevada, so that Money Eye could obtain her own divorce. And that's exactly what she did. She won full custody of their son and received a cash settlement of $135,000. That equated to just a tick under $3 million in today's money. Was she done? <laughs> no, not our girl. She'd learned that the little raiding party Wally had put together in Miami had informed hotel guests and anyone else who'd listen that they'd caught her unclad and insinuated that she'd been engaged in very licentious behavior. Money I sued the entire group. Her first number was a half million dollars, but then she reconsidered and changed that number to a million bucks. You know what that equates to? Try over $21 million today. Forget a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like a woman falsely accused, cruelly deprived of her child, and then mocked in public by a bellboy. Money Eye had not been brought up to be any man's victim. And the former actress knew how to court the press, how to dazzle the camera, how to tell her story to a public that feasted on gossip and scandal and any lurid tidbit that ripped the curtains back on the lives of the pampered and privileged. Get it, queen. We could just talk for days about how vice laws and the near impossibility of obtaining a divorce kept women without money eyes resources chained to marriages that were cold and lifeless at best, abusive and tyrannical at worst. The laws on divorce in New York, where Money Eye and Wally resided, were draconian. Adultery was the only grounds for a marriage to be dissolved. And when Wally decided, for whatever reason, that he wanted out, he had to cook up a case of adultery. That's why the raiding party in Miami. 
Those laws weren't reformed until 1966, when cruelty and abandonment were included as grounds for dissolution of marriage. It wasn't until 2010 that no-fault divorce was signed into law in New York. Money Eye was only able to beat the system because she had wealth and education and access to power. Think how many women back then didn't have her resources. How marriage for lots of those women was closer to servitude than any sparkling romantic fantasy. Money Eye took her big old divorce settlement and bought a ranch in Reno. What a plot twist for the heiress turned actress turned New York power wife. This is the moment where we discover what her true passion was in life. Not acting, not being rich and living the high life. Her passion wasn't even beating Wally Groves at his own game, though she had. No. What money-eyed Lindley Groves truly loved was love. The foreman she'd hired to manage her Reno ranch was a dashing cowhand with a pencil mustache named Paul Peterson. They fell in love, married in 1939, and enjoyed a fabulous honeymoon in New York City. Take that, Wally. You could call it a May-December romance. Not because of any age difference. It's just they got hitched in May and split up in December. Peterson, a true cowboy and a gentleman of the West, declined to take advantage of Nevada's divorce laws, which would have granted him half of Money Eye's fortune. Instead, he kissed her on the cheek and wished her well and rode off into the sunset. In what felt to Reno locals, like minutes later, Money Eye Lindley Groves Peterson was in love again, this time to a renowned local attorney named Gordon Rice. They married just two weeks after Gordon's divorce from his first wife was finalized. This time, Money Eye bypassed New York for her honeymoon, and the couple instead toured Havana, Cuba, and New Orleans. They'd only just returned to the Reno Ranch to set up house when they were in a terrible car accident. Gordon was behind the wheel when the vehicle crashed into a culvert. He was bruised and battered and suffered a bad cut to one leg. But his new bride fared far worse. Money Eye's injuries were severe. Lacerations and cuts, one thigh fractured, her chest crushed. Who knows what the whole story is? Did Money Eye blame Gordon for the wreck? What we do know is that the marriage ended less than a year after it began. Money Eye Lindley Groves Peterson Rice was single once again. <laughs> but love... Am I right? But what has become of my heart? Now that my baby's gone away, what's this emptiness inside? Wish I'd realized right at the start. Money I met the German landscape painter Louis Heinzmann on New Year's Day, 1941. They married about 10 minutes later, a slight exaggeration, but only slight. Money Eye had often denied the pairing was a legal one. Maybe it's because this marriage didn't even last six months. His art far outlived it. In fact, Heinzman is still known today for his oil paintings of Nevada, Utah, and California. Whether she admitted to the marriage or not, lucky number five was already waiting in the wings. 
His name was Edward Cupid. That's right, one consonant away from Cupid. Less than 24 hours after his divorce from wife Phyllis was finalized, the former deputy sheriff pledged his I do's to Money Eye. It was May 21st, 1941, with yet another brand new gold band gleaming on the third finger of her left hand. Money Eye boarded a flight to New York. Her first husband, Wally, was on trial for securities fraud. And how delicious it must surely have been for Money Eye, Lindley Groves, Peterson Rice, Heinzman Cupid to take the stand to testify against her former man, who was convicted and sentenced to two years in prison. They say revenge is a dish best served cold. And this was one frosty little treat for Wally's ex. Now, I don't know what went wrong between Money Eye and her rugged fifth husband. All I know is that she found love again in 1943 when she married another cowboy, husband number six. Dominic Perry was the son of an Italian immigrant. He was an experienced rancher and no doubt brought all sorts of tall, dark, and handsome to the party. This marriage looked like it might be the one. Three years in, they were still together. But Perry was a patriot, and he joined the U.S. Army during World War II. He was shipped off to the Pacific, and Money Eye promptly divorced him, saying that he'd left her to manage the ranch all alone. This time, Money Eye stayed single. Not forever, don't be silly, but for three whole years. It was the longest wedding drought of her life. Toiling away on her ranch, one glorious sunrise melting into yet another spectacular sunset. The weeks and months melting into years. But love. Am I right? But what has become of my heart? Now that my baby's gone away. Husband number seven was no cowboy. He was no Wall Street tycoon. His name was Al Price. Like Heinzman, he was an artist, a sculptor. But his real enthusiasm was the occult. Al Price was a hypnotist. And marriage number seven was unlike any of Money Eye, Lindley Groves, Peterson Rice, Heinzman Cupid, Perry Price's other nuptials. The couple threw a party at Money Eye's ranch. And the groom conducted a seance. Price placed one of the guests, a ranch hand, into a hypnotic state. To prove that the man was truly hypnotized, a guest was encouraged to touch the man's bare skin with a lit cigarette. Sure enough, no reaction. Then it got weird. Well, it got weirder. Deep in trance, the ranch hand declared the fate of the newlyweds. They must leave Reno, head for an artist colony in California. They were to travel incognito, use fake names once they arrived, and commit themselves to the study of philosophy. So, you know, being only on my third marriage, I cannot confirm that it's tradition to turn the seventh wedding into a spooky fest, because that's what this was. But the spirits had spoken. In no time at all, trucks were packed, the ranch was leased, and the newlyweds headed west in Money Eye's bright yellow car, her little Siamese cat perched on her lap. And 18 months later, Money Eye was back in Reno, 
the hypnotist husband nowhere in sight. The local papers were once again filled with stories about Money Eye heading to court, but this time it wasn't for a divorce. She repoed her ranch, kicked the man she leased it to off the land, and sued him for failing to pay for two vehicles she'd sold him. Now, you must know that she won that case. This woman had spent so much of her life among lawyers that she probably could have passed convincingly for one herself. Ranch back in hand, she turned around and sold the property outright. Then she bought another ranch and appears to have stayed single for a good while. She returned to the stage, Community Theater in Reno. In 1949, she received rapturous reviews for her portrayal of Constance in the play The Women. If she missed her glamorous life in Hollywood or New York, you'd never know it. She devoted herself to her community. She donated a valuable Appaloosa horse to be raffled off by the local Reno rodeo. She was lauded for her efforts to encourage competition and improved horsemanship in the local Native American population. She helped organize and appeared in a variety show staged for the benefit of the VFW. She was a fixture around town. And if her name appeared in the newspapers, it was low-key, like the report of a traffic ticket or a land purchase. Had much married money I finally gotten matrimony out of her system? Dinner at eight, one or the other arriving late, a break in the date, the pendulum swings, oh love's a lovely thing. Nah. In 1955, she became Mrs. Money Eye, Lindley, Groves, Peterson, Rice, Heinzman, Cupid, Perry, Price, Noah. Who was husband number eight? Well, at 27, Edwin Noah was 20 years younger than his new wife and a foreman with the power company. Like the others before him, Edwin wasn't here for a long time, just a good time. He had a brush with disaster in 1959 when he and his stepson, Baby Wally, a whole lot more grown since his kidnapping and now going by the name Norman. They were caught in a storm on Pyramid Lake. They managed to make it to shore where they built a fire and tried to dry out their clothing. But the fire went out at 2 a.m. and the pair huddled together in near zero temperatures, walking up and down the beach in an attempt to stay awake and not freeze to death. Rescue came when another fisherman spotted the pair a little after eight the next morning tragedy averted. Unfortunately, though, this close call was not enough to hold Money Eye and Edwin's marriage together. Nine months later, the Reno Gazette Journal published a list of newly granted divorce decrees, and there it was in print. Money Eye's eighth marriage was over. Her eighth marriage. And her last one. Money Eye was now 52 years old, living at her Cinnabar Hill Ranch in Sparks, Nevada. She disappeared from the news until August 1964. This time, the story had not even a hint of the reckless glamour that had been her calling card. It went like this. A Sparks woman was charged early this morning by Reno police with reckless driving and driving on the wrong side of a street or highway. The article described how money I struck two parked cars. It was rumored that she was drunk at the time. And then... Five years later, she was in the news again, and this time there would be no undoing the tragedy. Not with lawyers or money or a fresh chance at love. Money I died in a house fire at her ranch. 
The roads that fateful night were covered in snow, and the fire trucks slipped and slid and struggled to make their way to Cinnabar Hill. When they finally arrived, there wasn't enough water at the scene to fight the fire. They ended up pumping water out of the indoor swimming pool in Money Eye's basement. The fire chief declared that the blaze had begun in the family room, started most likely by a neglected lit cigarette. This larger-than-life, incredibly vivid character was gone. There would never be another wedding or honeymoon. But everyone who knew her agreed that Money Eye would have loved the press coverage surrounding her death because almost every reporter got her age wrong. She was 60 when she died, not 51 or 52 or 55. You might have expected that reports of Money Eye's death would be a gossipy rehashing of her roller coaster love life, her many marriages. But the press in her adopted home state of Nevada were far more respectful. Instead of her time in Hollywood or her first husband's prison sentence or her eight trips to the altar, they celebrated Money Eye's long career in ranching, spanning 1937 through 1953. From the Nevada State Journal, Her Arabian horses were recognized as one of the finest in the West, winning many ribbons in various shows. She also raised thoroughbreds, which were raced in California. She is survived by her son, Norman, and two grandchildren, David and Deborah. And you know what's pretty remarkable about this simple obituary? At a time when women were typically defined by their husband's name and accomplishments, this woman, who'd clucked eight husbands, was defined entirely by her own achievements. It's almost as if everyone understood that Money Eye's marital merry-go-round was something she did, and not all that she was. There's so many perspectives you can take on the life of Money Eye, Lindley Groves, Peterson Rice, Heinz McCute, Perry Price, Noah. Was she a free spirit? A woman in love with love? An impulsive romantic who could collect anything her heart desired. And what her heart desired was some elusive, happily ever after with a husband. And if not this one, then maybe the next. Or perhaps this is the way to see it. The rich are different. They get to make their own rules most of the time. And maybe it's not so much that money makes breaking the rules easier as it is that money makes you care a whole lot less about what other people think of you breaking those rules. The laws governing marriage were harsh in Money Eye's day, but enough money will smooth almost anything over. Couple that with blazing confidence and a near-complete disregard for social conventions and you get a wild card like Money Eye, Lindley Groves, well, you know the rest. Money Eye was born to privilege and comfort, encouraged to follow her wildest dreams, and given the resources to do just that. I think she knew in her bones the real truth about wealth. It's not happiness that money buys. It's freedom. Don't waste a minute feeling sorry for Money Eye and her eight marriages. Yeah, she got it wrong eight times, but she had the freedom to keep chasing her happiness 
the freedom to keep believing that the next set of vows would be the forever I do's. And remember, she did it all at a time when a woman couldn't even have a credit card in her own name. Two lovers need to realize Each will have to reach a little compromise But just when their lives are calm and quiet One's bound to turn around and start a riot Over the top That roller coaster begins to drop There's no way to stop the heartaches that sting Oh, love's a lovely thing next time on true weird stuff tell someone today that you think the planet mars used to be home to an advanced civilization that there are martian made artifacts dotting that barren landscape that nasa is lying about what those structures and shapes really are and you'll be labeled a kook but not all that long ago the whole usa went silent and everyone held their breath in hopes of hearing a radio transmission from our Martian cousins. That's the next True Weird Stuff. Hey, we want to um, start off by thanking the voice actor who took on the role of Money Eye and her eight last names, <laughs> Diana Sanders. Thank you so much for playing Money Eye, Lindley, Gross Peterson, Rice Cuba Berry, blah, blah, blah. Um, I thought it would be fun to uh, tell a story that did not involve a drop of blood, really, or <laughs> any mayhem or um, any <laughs> creepy little kids knocking on the door. Because at the moment, that we are dropping this episode. Um, things are going extra nutty. People are a small minority, a vocal minority, but they're loud and insistent, um, are looking to really turn back the clock on uh, women in this country. So, you know, of course, uh, the end of Roe v. Wade, but um, the state of Alabama just gave frozen embryos personhood. Um, We have uh, legislators coming after IVF, uh, which is devastating. I mean, I I don't know if you have anyone in your life, anyone in your family that needed IVF to have a child. So, you know, maybe. But for a lot of people, it's the only way they were able to have children. It's the only way, yeah. And to to prevent that seems criminal to me, but. Criminal. They're also coming after um, hormonal birth birth control. Hormonal birth control is um, the latest buzzword for oral contraception, the pill. And there's some talk about um, unwinding no-fault divorce on the grounds that um, women are just recklessly, fecklessly marrying and walking out of marriages, you know, on an impulse, which is kind of what Money Eye's story looks like, you know, at a casual glance. But it's way more complicated than that. Um, Money Eye was able to get married eight times, because she had the resources to get married eight times. There are a lot of um, stories that we tell in True Weird Stuff where bigamy is in the background. Yeah. Remember William Goldensup, oh, yeah. uh, Goldensup the um, headless Dutchman. Right. Um, you know, uh, both he and the woman he was living with um, were, it was bigamists. I mean, they were bigamists, right? And why, you say to yourself, why were there so many bigamists back in the day? Because they couldn't get divorced. 
So you might have a couple that just agreed to part ways and go their separate ways. And then maybe they would marry again or, or, or cohabitate or whatever. Bigamy. Um, the episode called Unholy City, uh, the leader of the cult, the perfect Christian divine way. William Riker was a bigamist. Um, I know people who in their uh, family history, uh, Pawpaw was a bigamist. Turns out great grandma was a bigamist. And people are like, oh my God, it's so shameful. What was wrong with them? Well, they were trying to live their lives within the confines of laws that really stepped all over individual rights, freedoms, and autonomy. Right. And I cannot believe, Max, that we even have to have a conversation about people wanting to return to that thoughts. Um, Yeah. I'm reminded of a call we once had on Bob and Sherry where this woman went to the beach and with this man that she barely knew. And while they were there, they drunkenly got married. And so we asked, so are you married now? Yes, I am. Did you get divorced from the first man? And there was this pause and she went, shh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I, you know, I think that um, money, I, she, you're right. She was in love with love. And I do believe that each of these times she thought, yes, this is it. She got caught up in the infatuation of the moment. Those feelings feel so real in that moment if you've ever fallen in love and then turned around later and gone, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know. I, I agree. She, she was a deeply romantic person, but she was smart as a whip too and, yeah. and would not be – would not allow herself to be walked on. The number of people who suffered the indignity of a hotel raid, it's shocking. It is shocking how many people had the door of their motel or hotel room kicked open by a squadron of, you know, hard-bitten cops and fedoras. Like, what the what? But it was a thing. It was a very common thing in this country, starting in, like, maybe the early 1930s, right through the maybe late 1950s. Mm-hmm. And you can, like, some of these uh, hotels, they called them hot motels. And a hot motel was a place, you know, where people were clearly going to fornicate and commit adultery. And so it was kind of like um, uh, cops, uh, you know, parking off the side of the road outside the local honky tonk and scooping up drunk right. drivers. Like you knew that there were some crimes going on at the hot motels. And so you'd go after them. It's just, it's hard for me as an American, um, born when I was born to comprehend that, that anyone would be pro. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's live like that again. Let's do that. Um, again. I did think that it was interesting and I think it's a sign of the times that I believe it was the second husband who was the ranch hand who said, no, I don't want any of your money. I just, all right, let's just, let's just part from here. I'll, I'll leave Peterson. with what I came with and yeah. just move on. Does anybody act that way anymore? Everybody is like, I'm going to get mine, you know? Oh I, my God. I got wiped out. You um, did. And I got, I have, I will never recover from the um, economic beating that I took. Um, I had a judge say to me, well, you wanted equality. Here it is. And I mean, my first marriage, um, we had no children. I had it annulled. I mean, that's how like not a marriage this was. We had no children and he cleaned me out. It was like 
He took everything but the sugar in the sugar and bowl. The I felt like sin- he took the furniture. I could rollerblade around the uh, my living room with my dogs chasing me. He took everything. I felt like Cindy Lou Who, like he got the last can of Who hash. He took everything, and the judge granted him alimony. Uh-huh. And the only reason yeah. uh, uh, the judge granted him alimony equivalent to more like I couldn't pay my bills. Like I was bouncing checks paying this man. Um, this alimony. And the only reason that it ended is because in all of his feckless, reckless stupidity, he got a woman pregnant and his father was like, you're marrying her son. That's the end of this nonsense. And so my lawyer called me up and said, I have great news. Your ex is about to be a father and you don't have to pay alimony anymore. So that was divorce. Number one, divorce. Number two, I did not fare much better. Mm -mm. I got my kids and, and lost everything else i will never be able to recover i may never be able to retire like it's a complete shit show that said that said i would give everything up because those were not those were not marriages that i could thrive in or i mean you know max right like it was not it was not what was happening was not okay no um And people go, oh, well, you know, you're just hard to get along with and blah, blah, blah. Oh, trust me. No, I'm not. Um, I fled my first marriage with the clothes on my back as my um, ex was putting his fist through the wall next to my head. So just give me a break right there. Right. I was, de- I was delighted to give him every nickel I'd ever earned. Um, not much different on the second one. So I kind of feel, I kind of feel for money I, because if you are a person who believes in love and marriage, you know, you're you're probably going to give it another try. I'm very happily married now and have been for we've been together 15 years. So I, I did finally get it right. But the idea that the law that we would live in a country in the year of our Lord Bejeebers, it's 2024, that we would live in a country where the government can tell you who you live with and how you live. I'm sorry, but no. Yeah, I I was engaged to be married. Sherry knows this story very well. I was engaged to be married, and eight weeks before the wedding, called it off. Um, and ballsiest thing ever. You know, the, and you know, it was a it was a really difficult thing to do. Um, she, I, I, I don't mind talking about this too much because she has uh, since passed away. But I, um, it was, it was a really difficult thing to do because it was, it was something that I had rebounded out of relationship. I, you know, I had been uh, living with a woman, which I guess was against the law, <laughs> technically. But I had fornicated, and she yeah. left me for someone else, and all of a sudden, um, I had this relationship weeks later, and probably had no business doing that. Um, but it, it, the thing about a marriage too is it becomes – sometimes it becomes about the wedding and sometimes it becomes about everything but what the relationship is between the two of you. And the fact was we were not getting along. Now, she was willing to move forward with the marriage with us being like that. She just thought that's what happens. That's just how you are with people. And my feeling was, no, I think that you should not be um, – in this much disagreement about so many things and you were wise and you were wise you know um so as somebody who's never never been married of course you could you 
you can say, wow, you know, uh, how could you comment on this? And it's just that the idea is that you you are always hopeful that you can find that love in, in your life. You know, you're hopeful that you can find somebody that you can be with, uh, that you can you can build a life together. But there's no guarantees of anything. There's no guarantees of how the other person's going to act after you get married. There's just no guarantees of anything. And the one thing that's true about that situation is I had so many people come to me and say, I knew uh, my situation was just like yours. I knew it going in. I knew it walking down the aisle, but I married that person and had three kids with them and then only sorted this out 20, 30 years later. I had many people tell me that. Well, Max, I will confess. Um, so my second marriage, um, that he is the father of my two children, and they are my life. I, everything is for my girls. So I would never unwind that decision or undo it. But I will confess to my everlasting shame and regret that I did not want to go through with the wedding. And on my, the morning of my uh, wedding day, I was in a panic, like an absolute trembling panic because I knew I was making a mistake. <laughs> and here, you know, my, my mom and stepdad, they were like, we want you to have a wedding and a beautiful dress. And, you know, it was in a Catholic church and, uh, my ex had a son from his first marriage that I utterly loved and adored and, and still, still do, do to this day. And I just felt like I, like a good, like a true Capricorn. I just said to myself, buck up girl, you can make anything work if you work at it. Um, but I knew, I knew I was making a mistake and, and I, and I will not demonize that man. I will tell you that I knew I was making a mistake. I knew that I did not love him. And I, I also knew that he didn't love me. Like we can get all like gooey and romantic and act like high school students or whatever. But, but love is real. Love, love is a real living thing that can transform a person. And you know love when you encounter it. And I knew that this man did not love me. This man needed me, which is not the same thing. Need is not the same thing as love. And if you fall into the trap of needing to be needed, that's a bad, Which, that's a bad yeah. combination. Well, I'm very, um, you know, I am the product of a chaotic early life. I was, all of my boundaries were thoroughly trampled and violated um, at a very early age. Um, I grew up in domestic violence and addiction. I am a people pleaser and I'm codependent. I've had eons worth of therapy. I've trained a social worker myself. And I, so I can see, I can see all of my um, damage and, and dysfunction, but that's like saying, I can see that my leg is broken. I'm still going to try to walk on it, right? Like I can see it, but that doesn't, seeing it doesn't make it magically go away. And I was in over my head. You know, my, my, my mom and stepdad had paid a lot of money for this wedding and People were coming from all over the country and I'm a, you know, I, I have like a real public job. It was in the newspaper. It was oh, on the you, cover you, you, of a, a local magazine. Oh yeah. Like I just felt like I have to do this. I have to do it. And it was, 
it went south like almost right away. It was like as soon as the uh, the ink dried on the marriage license, my ex was like, "Well, she's not going anywhere," and the um, the emotional and mental and psychological abuse began. And I'm gonna name it and claim it because that's what it was. Now, is marriage good for children? Is an intact family good for children? You betcha. It, it is absolutely good for children until it isn't. Mm. My parents stayed married for 17 years while my brothers and I literally cowered behind our beds for fear that my father was going to kill us all. There was so much chaos, gunfire, and insanity in my life that um, when my parents got divorced, we thought, okay, we have a fighting chance to make it to adulthood. So marriage is good for children until it isn't. My marriage never had the meth and, and handguns that my parents' marriage did, but um, I was um, I was slowly being hollowed out. I came home from a business trip one time. My flight had been canceled and canceled and canceled. I was in San Diego and finally got on a plane that got me home about one o'clock in the morning. And I walked in the door and the house was dark except for the flickering light of the television. And my ex was sitting on the couch watching something. And I walked in and he didn't like say, thank God you're home or hey, can I help you with your bag or I'm glad to see you. Um, and so I'm like, what, what is this? And I was like, I'm home. And he goes, yeah, I'll be honest. I was kind of hoping your plane would crash. Wow. <laughs> Marriage is good for children until it isn't. Wow. Marriage is good for children until it isn't. And um, and as someone who's on her third marriage, it may seem that I am cavalier and casual about that uh, commitment. But, but you're not. not. No, you're not. I'm not. Mm -mm. I'm not. And marriage is good for children. My daughters are now part of a big blended family. They have... Um, we call them bonus siblings, but they have step siblings. My husband's ex-wife is like my sister. She is a second mother to my daughters. My girls got uncles and like all sorts of wonderful things. Has it been like a, a constant uh, birthday party? No, we've had a lot of struggle. You don't you don't build a family like that without a lot of effort and frustration and tears. And I mean, yeah. Marriage is really good for children until it isn't. And Money Eye um, only had one child, Wallace Groves Jr., Wally. He, after the kidnapping and all the shenanigans, he changed his name to Norman and has ha, and disappeared into a very private life. Can, can I just point out that if you're going to change your name, I don't know, maybe something a little Norman. more lyrical than Norman. Well, of course, this was pre-Hitchcock Psycho, so he yeah. had no idea what he was opting into. <laughs> so um, Money Eye's first husband, um, the, Mr. Stock Market Fraud, he he went to prison, but he got out really fast, remarried, ended up living in the Caribbean and having himself quite a time. He went on and had a fine life um, after Money Eye. And here's my question to you, Max. Why did he do what he did? Because that was the trigger that started this whole story. Why he takes his, she had just, she was postpartum. She had just had their first child. He's the one who's like, you need a vacation, sunshine and orange juice. And then he cooks up this whole scheme. 
was that? Here's what here's what I think. Money Eye um, was no shrinking violet, and she probably never was a shrinking violet at any point in her life, and probably grew stronger as she got older and got a better sense of herself. But I think that for him, this was a power play of, I'm going to show you. Now, we don't know what happened specifically between the two of them, but I suspect that there was a bit of a power struggle, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm in charge, and I'm going to show you how. Oh, that's a good, that is a good theory. And he humiliated her. Oh, my God, yes. You know, bringing that crowd of people into that hotel bathroom, she's soaking wet and shivering and naked, and everyone's gawking and leering, and she hears them laughing and, all right, drinks on me. That was, that's abuse right there, right? That's like horrifying. And had she... Had she stayed, had she no option but to stay, do you see the pattern? Can you see what would have been set into motion? Right. If she had been a woman without any resources at all, internal, external, just, okay, this is my life now. This man can do as he pleases. He has the law and the uh, the power on his side. And he, by the way, as um, sometimes if you're patient enough and let the story play out, you can see that people do get people show you who they are and then they get what's coming to them. So this same man who did this really can we agree that that was a horrific I mean thing it's terrible. I mean it's just about it's just about and as then, awful as it can be. And then took the baby and hid the baby for a week. Like this is some, this is some stuff, okay? This man then he was committing fraud and hiding money. And, you know, eventually he was tried, convicted, and sent to prison. So he kind of showed you right at the jump who he was. Go ahead and believe it. Yeah, he was all about power and his um, his own ego control. and control and all of that stuff. And So the, the fun thing was, like, if you're – you'd have to be, I guess – I don't even know how old you would have to be – to like even comprehend that you had to go to Reno to get divorced. Yeah. Like movie stars, politicians, like everybody who wanted a divorce, an easy, quick divorce had to go to Reno and it wasn't cheap. And the fact that we had something called the migratory divorce trade, like, (laughs) whoa, okay. The state where I live, the divorce laws in the state where I live are punitive. You have to be legally separated for a year. to uh, domiciles for a year before you can even file. And I guess, I don't know, like, do they think that in that year, you know, you might change your mind? I, I don't know what that's about. It's punitive. I'm sure that that's what the idea is. You just cool off for a little bit and then maybe you'll want to get back together. And people, and that does happen from time to time. I mean, people do, whether it's, whether, whether the, whether the government should be legislating such a thing is the question. What I love about Nevada, Nevada is one of the last vestiges of the old wild West in this country, because it's still kind of the old wild West there. You know, it is. And even Reno's, um, easy divorce laws reflected the ethos of the West, which is, um, a person out here has some room to think and be and be free. Right. 
And we don't cotton to you stepping on those rights much out here in the land of manifest destiny. And that's why and she said so right. Yeah, that's yeah, why she so settled right. there, because that fit with her personality that that it wasn't just getting divorced there. I mean, that really fit with her personality. She was a very um, important citizen of Reno in terms of the community service work that she did right. and her generosity. She was, an, she was an incredible rancher. I mean, the fact that at her death, all of the Nevada newspapers um, wrote in glowing terms about her skill with horses and her commitment to um, the native, the indigenous people and her um, stewardship of the land. Like she was an incredible rancher. You won't find a mention in those Nevada obituaries, those glowing editorials about her brief Hollywood career or her many, many marriages. You just won't find it because to your point, Max, that was a place where that individuality and that right to live your life by your own dictates was venerated. That was the West and, and still is, I think, in a lot of ways. There's a lot of people who are very successful, good citizens, but have not been able to get the personal life part of their lives together. And I am always very suspicious of people who are really judgy about that, who act like, wow, they just this or they just that, you know, why, why are you so judgy about that? Because I, it, it often, as, as one who's been judged. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it, it often like the person who's the first to say to you, well, I can't respect you. You canceled your wedding or I can't really be your friend. You're, you're getting divorced. I'm like, wow, is my is my life stepping on your nerve? Like what's why is this so triggering for you? I mean, Max, I think a lot of the people that were judgy of you for canceling a doomed you canceled a wedding that for a doomed marriage you saved yourself and her and your families right and it's and it was not something that go ahead say what you're going to say i think a lot of the people that judged you had their own deep deep regrets and their own serious misgivings yeah it was i think one of the most difficult things that i've ever done ever but there was never a time where I looked back and said, I shouldn't have done this. Did I have feelings about the fact that I was hurting her and all the people that were connected to this? Yeah, I had terrible feelings. People were traveling. People were, tra people were traveling from overseas to come to this wedding who had made plans. Um, and it was, it was a very difficult thing to do. I did not do it. I did not wake up one day and go, I just don't, I, I'm not going to do this. It, it, here's what happened. And this is where, listen to your friends. People said, shouldn't you be happy about this? And I, I thought, should I be? And the answer is yes, you should be happy about it. You should not be entering anything, any kind of a big commitment like that and think, well, I'm sorry, this has taken on a life of its own. I'm just going to have to let this go and try to tough it out. You shouldn't do that. And it's See, very, it's very difficult to listen to your own internal voice because there's people that always say, "When you know, you know." And you did. I did. And and you know, Max, this we're such, Max and I are such Swifties, but it's like that lyric in the in the Taylor Swift song. It's isn't it supposed to be fun turning twenty one? Like, isn't it supposed to be joyful? 
getting ready to pledge your life to the person you love, right? Speaking of um, somebody who gets judged a lot with her relationships. Oh my God, yeah. Oh my God. She's a great example. She's a great example of that where she has so many things in her life that are together. This part of her life hasn't worked out yet. Although I'm of the belief that it is going to work out. We'll see if I'm right. I'm hopeful. You know, I'm very team uh, Tavis. I think, so one of the reasons Sherry, that Sherry, I like Taylor Swift, but I'm not going to say Team Tavis. Is it okay if I don't say, say that? No, I it's can't. It's okay. Say. Every we all we all have our limits, and I respect you for I'm knowing not yours. Say team Tavis. All right, you don't on. have to say Team Tavis. Go ahead with what you were um, saying. So one of the things that I mean, I've been a, a Taylor Swift fan for a very long time because, like, like you know, like a lot of adults, if you're honest, um, the my outside has moved through time, but inside, I don't feel any different than I did when I was 19. <laughs> like, I just still have all the same, like, oh, oh, yep. kind of, you know, like daydreamy romantic impulses. I have not changed. My favorite foods haven't changed. Like, I have just not changed. So I'm always such a staunch defender of Taylor Swift. And one of the challenges, I think, with her personal life, if I may, um, we live in a culture where being a successful, um, empowered and powerful women changes your dating options and dramatically. And it can be very difficult to be in a relationship in our culture, the way it is configured, the way we have all been socialized from early childhood into our cishet gender roles. Okay. It can be very difficult for a man to find himself in such um, an odd and backward equation where this woman has so much wealth and power and attention and her career is so enormous and demanding. And you may think you're okay with that in the early days of infatuation. (coughs) But it's difficult for a man to be Mr. Mr. Mm So-and-so. Mr. Taylor Swift... Mr. Cher, Mr. Madonna. <clears throat> I mean, I had a lot of struggle at a tiny or much smaller level with the problem of being Mr. Sherry Lynch. And you know that because yeah. you were there for it. Yeah, it's true. I'm not sure how I would react in a situation like that. I'm not sure. But in the case of Taylor Swift, I'd love to you know, at least have the opportunity to find out. Yeah. I think part of the reason that um, she and Travis Kelsey work and make some sense as a couple is because he is so incredibly successful and defined in his own right in a career that has absolutely zero to do with hers. That is part of the reason why when they first started going out, I said, this is the, he's, they're going to marry. The, they, they have found each other because he he is he's a man's man there's no doubt about that and he does have a great sense of himself but they also are both at an age where they have enough experience to really know what they want i think and i think that's why i thought i think that they are going to get engaged and uh, are going to get married i hope so i love them as a couple and i love I love that for her that uh, he's so he seems okay. Like we don't know. We're just speculating, right? Because like, we don't know, but 
he seems, and when you look at like his parents and his brother, I'm a big fan of their podcast, New Heights, uh, Travis and Jason Kelsey's podcast, which I don't know any, I can't tell you which side of the field you should run on with a football under your arm. Like I know nothing, but I thoroughly enjoy this podcast because they're so charming as hosts. He seems very much secure in himself. He knows who he is, knows what he wants, has um, been incredibly driven his whole life from childhood, as is Taylor. And he doesn't need, he doesn't need to have a partner who is his mirror. Right. You know, who shines back and reflects on him all of, you know, his glory. He doesn't need that to complete him. And isn't it interesting while we're, I just, as I said that, I thought, you know, the Justin Timberlake song Mirrors is a love song, but it's, it's like you're my mirror, my mirror looking back at me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perhaps it is not optimal to commit yourself to your mirror looking back at you. Like maybe, maybe the goal is to commit yourself to another human being who is whole and complete in him or herself. <laughs> Seriously, it's going to be a lot better because because nobody can live up to that uh, kind of dependence. Nobody can live up to um, somebody else depending on that person. And the reason for that is you're human. You're human and human beings are flawed and you're going to let people down when you put somebody on a pedestal like that and rely on them for your own self-worth. I think that's just the freaking basic truth of it. Now, why that is, why that eludes some of us, I don't know. I mean, because we we are sometimes we are broken puzzle pieces, and our brokenness fits with the other person's brokenness in the worst kind of way. I mean, yeah, yeah, amen to that. It's you look at um, you look at a life like Money Eyes and. You can take it in so many different ways. You can say spoiled rich girl. You can say um, neurotic in love with love. There's like a million different interpretations that you can make on that life. But here's yet another way to see it. I mean, I really think that money and freedom, you know, that is the greatest thing you can buy with your money is your freedom. But here's another way to look at it. We forget like where you grow up or how you grow up. I kind of feel like as, as, um, as human animals, we are wired to seek a mate and not just to procreate. Like, it's like our souls are looking for that other half. Mm -hmm. And we, we feel like it's inevitable. And this is cultural that we will find that right Mm -hmm. sooner or later. There's, you've heard the expressions, There's someone for everyone. Your perfect person waits. So many fish in the sea, blah, 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 right? And so we do kind of believe and expect that that other half is out there. And I think that Money Eye just was convinced that her perfect partner was waiting for her. And she kept finding him and then realizing, yeah, maybe not the one. Possibly, girl, because you were marrying these men no, like a minute after you met them. Like maybe take some time <laughs> to get to know them. But that impulsive, romantic, 
um, all-consuming, I think you're the one, drove her. And, and you have to ask yourself, if you had those kinds of resources, what choices might you have made differently? Mm, truly. You know, if you could, if you could chase that dream of love over and over and over again, would you? I mean, for a lot of us, we just simply can't. Um, we no longer have the migratory divorce trade in America. Instead, we have the um, life-altering, economic, destabilizing divorce trade in America. Mm. And, you know, people are, oh, well, men get the hard end of the deal. Oh, sweetheart, take all the seats. Every, oh. it's not just men. <laughs> you can't, yeah. Don't come to Sherry Lynch with that. I can Don't tell you. With that. <laughs> from, from. <laughs> Don't come to me with that. Um, and I'm not the only woman that has paid and paid dearly. And then you look at the way that the whole uh, family court system is set up. You know, you have people pissing and moaning about $300 a month in child support. Like I've raised a couple of kids 100% on my own and $300 is gone in a day sometimes. You know, there's the, there's the, there's two dentist appointments and new sneakers for gym and we're boom, there's 300 bucks gone. So the idea that women are somehow scamming you for child support, like give me a break. There's so much rhetoric and so much bullshit around people's, what should be people's um, deeply private family lives. And now we're going to, we're going to add to that by creating additional laws and additional punishments and additional rhetoric and bullshit. Like, tell me how that's going to help. Tell me, tell me how, if the, if the problem that in this country is that marriage is no longer a sacred institution and men and women no longer tie the knot expecting it to stay tied. That to me is a problem that is not for the law to solve. That goes way deeper than the law can manage. That has something to do with the way that we are living, the way that we are socializing and being socialized. I mean, I don't mean socializing and going to parties, the expectations that we're being raised with because we live in the most two-faced hypocritical culture ever with one face. You're being told marriage is one man and one woman. It's good for children till death do us part forever. But with the other face, um, you, you can barely survive sometimes in this culture because late stage consumer capitalism is a goddamn great white shark that's eating your head as you're trying to swim away. Like, do you, you know, we, we talk a good game about how important and sacred families and marriages and children are. And then we have so many forces mobilized against any of those things succeeding. And we think, oh yeah, we probably need more, more laws to keep, uh, to keep people together. It doesn't make sense to me. And it doesn't make sense to me, not because of my own personal experience. It doesn't make sense to me because all you have to do, all you have to do is look at the sweep of history in this country to realize what comes after these punitive laws are put into place. Because people don't change. People will not stop fornicating. No, no, all no, of these things, right? That's <laughs> that's happened throughout human history. Yeah. Like you can pass all the laws you want. You cannot legislate human nature and you certainly cannot legislate human behavior when it comes to uh, love 
and commitment and sex and fidelity and all of that. Can you think of a single instance, Max, where those kinds of laws have have been effective for the good? No. In fact, in, in fact, if you if you want to know how ridiculous these laws are, there's a movie. It's called The Woo Woo Kid. <laughs> so uh, Patrick Dempsey played uh, Sonny Weiscarver, who was a young man who ended up hooking up with this woman who was married. And it became this enormous scandal. Enormous. Like newspapers, headlines, everything yeah. else. It was just such a ridiculous thing that this became such a big story. Well, it wasn't just one woman. It was a couple women, but it, it, nonetheless. Um, and it was probably in the 19, uh, probably 1930s, 1940s that this happened. I mean, when you think about, I mean, sure, people are going to want to read about it, but is it the biggest non-news story ever? It's, it really should not be anyone's business. Like, um, how about if the government focuses on the roads and the bridges? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. National yeah. defense. I'm, Sherry, you, you preach to the choir water. on this one. Yeah. You know, people, people go to people and that's just the thing about it. And of course they only do it because people have an idea of what the way they think things should be. And the politicians go, is that what, is that what dance I have to do? All right, fine. I'll put this law I'll into place. Yeah. I'll just do it. So you go, Oh, okay, fine. Oh, this person's thinking like I'm thinking, although the, the law is completely ridiculous, completely. I just feel like, um, it might be a better use of government resources to inspect the drinking water in Flint, Michigan, than to inspect what's happening in my bedroom. And that now, granted, not everybody agrees with that. Some people are like, no, nope, we got to make sure you not fornicating before we can worry about the drinking water. But yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. So um, something that I was thinking about uh, as we wrap up this episode on Money Eye, Lindley, Groves, Peterson, Cupid, Perry, <laughs> all of her names. Um, something I was thinking about, as I often do when we're creating an episode of True Weird Stuff is, gosh, we all think we're so important and that what we think and feel and believe is so necessary for others to hear and that our lives are so significant and that we are by God. Look at me, look at me, look at me. But you know, um, history, even recent history, is choked with people whose lives were lived on a very big stage, who made extraordinary uh, differences and accomplishments and achievements, and you don't know their name. They're completely forgotten, mm. like they never existed. So you have to say to yourself, well, if that's the deal, and it is, right? It is the deal. If that's the deal, then maybe I should... Just mind my business and do the best I can to be a decent human being in my little patch of ground. I think that in the end, it's the little, it's the, it's the kindnesses. It's the, I'll use the word. It's going to sound really, but the energy that we give, that we give to people. Yeah. And if that person 
takes, let's say there was some something where I found some little time in my life where I was able to do something that was kind for that person and that, it, and that inspired them to do it for somebody else and that inspires somebody else. And it ripples, if we can ripple through people's lives, if I throw the, if I throw the pebble into the pond and it ripples out in a positive way, it doesn't matter whether anybody ever remembers what my name is. What's important is the ripple and the energy and what positive things that that can do. Because I'm never going to have a building named after me, but it doesn't matter to me, you, you know? Totally. I, I just kind of feel like if you want to make a difference in the world, um, load up your, your car with some non-perishable food items and some cartons of ultra-pasteurized milk and go take them to the food bank instead of endlessly pissing and moaning because your next door neighbor has a husband who's also a man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, two men are living next door to you and they're married and they're minding their business and cutting their grass and going to work every day. And your shorties are knotted up tighter than a tick over somebody else's bedroom business and love life and personal choices. How's about Gladys Kravitz and uh, Mr. Kravitz? How's about if instead you take that energy that you are investing in hatred and judgment and maybe point it towards something where you can make a goddamn bit of good difference in somebody's life. How about that? And, because you are going to be forgotten. And don't tell Everything. anybody. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, and don't tell anybody. anybody. Keep it a secret. But let me, let me promise you, all of your hatred and all of your bumper stickers and all of your sloganeering and all of your internet trolling and all of your yelling and screaming and shouting and rage will die with you and be as forgotten as you are going to be. I'm going to be forgotten. Max is going to be forgotten. We're all going to be forgotten. So since we're all going to be a great big zero, why not use the time you have here? I'm going to say it again and not be a dick. How about that? <laughs> That's a great way to end this. <laughs> how about that? How about it is none of your business how many times money I got married. It is only your business how many times you get married and how you act in that marriage. And, and leave everybody else the hell alone. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard? Now, you're definitely going to want to be with us next week for True Weird Stuff because we're going to take you on a very exciting journey to Mars. And you are going to hear things and learn things that you've never heard before. And your jaw is going to drop. And at the end of it, you're going to be like, so that's why we're this way. Uh-huh. And that's a promise. We'll see you next week. Shh, it's Mars. True, weird stuff. Thanks for listening. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, hit the plus button in the top right corner. And now it helps an independent podcast like ours to get discovered. And we really appreciate it if you subscribe, rate, and review True Weird Stuff. Hit our website, trueweirdstuff.com, for show notes and photos and videos when we have it and bonus content. Everything True Weird is waiting for you at trueweirdstuff.com. And follow True Weird Stuff on Instagram and Twitter. True Weird Stuff is a now media production. Our executive producer is Anthony Garcia. The show is written and hosted by me, Sherry Lynch, along with my deeply weird director, Max Sweeten. 
Our equally odd producer is Carrie Bowser. Additional production by the mysterious Stephen Call. Our digital witch and social media cult leader is Heather Furr. Original graphics by Kevin Nash. Original artworks by Olivia Axlin. True weird original music composed and performed by Jack Griffin and Zane Nash. Copyright 2024 Now Media. All rights reserved. All wrongs remembered.